0: I just couldn't have written a book that didn't talk about why you're doing what you're doing. You know, what, what, what's the point of doing this compositing stuff? Is you're trying to make stuff look real, and how do you how do you even talk about that without talking about you know, look, learning to see what what real looks like. But speed was kind of it came in, and I remember reading the script for it. And I, I read through the script; it's a fast read, it's a fairly short script, and it's, you know, it's mostly action, right? And I sort of read it and like, God, there's not much here, right? I mean, I, I see the action stuff, but just in terms of a movie, who's gonna want to, <laughs> who's gonna want to watch this? Because uh, it didn't feel like there was a whole lot there. And, and of course, then when the director Jan you know, Demont came out and, and put the whole thing together, it was this amazing action movie. When you're building something as complex as a compositing tree, uh, the ability to be able to kind of narrow down on some small pieces of it and understand it, you know, putting in things like being able to group a bunch of operations together and collapse them into something that looks like a single operation just so you can understand. I mean, you know, you've seen anybody that's done big compositing scripts, they can just be enormous.
1: Hi, so welcome to the VFX Artist Podcast, um, we often say someone of who's experienced has written the book on something, and, and in fact, our next guest, Ron Brinkman, has written a book on compositing, so welcome to the show, Ron Brinkman. It's
0: great to be here, it's uh, been a little while since I wrote that book, but hopefully I, I keep hearing that at least a few people are finding it useful still, so hopefully so.
1: Yeah, I think there's certain things that are timeless. I mean, you kind of wish there'd be a third edition, and I think it'd be cool to see what the kind of third edition might be. But um, we'll come to that later in the show. Maybe first I'd just like to kind of roll right back and sort of talk about um, how you yourself got started in in VFX.
0: I mean, I'm going to have to – we need to put uh, some sort of a quota on on me saying, I remember when or back in the day, (laughs) because it's been a few years now – but yeah, I mean I uh you know I came out of university and uh bounced around at a couple of uh hardware and software companies and I ended up working at a company called Wavefront, which I doubt anybody remembers it now, but it was one of the very early uh CG, you know, three D CG packages. They, so Maya,
1: Maya before Autodesk. So right? basically, no. yeah,
0: well before all that, there was there was back in the, back in the day. Jesus, I'm going to do that too many times. Back in the day, there was uh, there was Wavefront and there was Alias, and they were you know the two sort of primary competitors in that 3D space. And um, at some point, they they merged, or I think Alias bought them, and then Autodesk bought them, and somewhere along the line, that all turned into Maya. Um, so yeah, that that's the very short history of what those packages were at any rate I was working for uh for Wavefront mostly in sort of a not really a sales but a tech support kind of a job and um there was this little company called Sony that was like we need to have an in-house effects group and um you know we'd like to look at your software and so I came out there and I think they were already planning on this. As soon as I sort of showed up and started showing them stuff, they said, you know, what we really need is somebody knows how to use this. And we're just starting off. And they'd hired virtually nobody at this point, four or five people. Um, and so they offered me a job. And it was definitely diving into the uh, deep end of the of the tank. Uh, we had, especially at the very beginning, nobody that had really done very much in the way of film production. They started hiring more people to doing film production, but you know, the guy that started it was sort of a big dreamer, but didn't quite, um, I mean, he had no visual effects background. He was just sort of said, this is, this looks cool. And he managed to sell the studio on the idea. And so for many years there, we were working out of, uh, what they call the TriStar building, which was one of the production offices at Sony. And, uh, just started doing visual effects, and we, you know, fortunately hired a few more people that knew some stuff, and we made up a lot of stuff ourselves that we were always like, "Oh, I've come up with this great idea," and then later we realized, "Yeah, you know, island has been doing that for ten years, but good, good for you to come up with that idea too." So, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I ended up spending a number of years uh, doing film production at at Sony, which became Sony Imageworks. That was a name that came on after a, a year or two after we got started.
1: So that was where. Uh, so that was James and the Giant Peach was one of the shows you. Was that yeah, one of the first no. Shows James was and the Giant Peach
0: show? was was partly probably about midway through my my time at Sony. I mean, the first shows we worked on, I think my first credit was on the fabulous movie uh, Last Action Hero. Holy cow! I'm in
1: the movie
0: with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so- it was. You know, Arnold was at the peak of his powers then, and this was the big movie from Arnold Schwarzenegger, and yes. there was all the talk about it. And um, and then there was some other little movie that came out that about the same time called Jurassic Park, which uh, <laughs> got a little more notice than than Arnold's <laughs> Arnold's movie did. Damn it! But. Uh, yeah, it was uh that was my first one. There was uh uh a, a few different movies there. One of the earlier ones I worked on also was Speed with Keanu Reeves and uh doing things like making the bus jump over a gap in the freeway. Um so yeah, it started off as kind of pure visual effects stuff and even though I'd come on board sort of as a uh a three D person, I knew I knew the wavefront software, so I knew three D a lot more than I knew 2D. I'd done some compositing stuff. There was a really early on compositing package called, God, I think it was called Video Composer at the time, and it was literally initially it would only do video, re- video resolution, and then they added the ability to do something higher resolution than that. But um, I hadn't really done a whole lot of compositing at to that point. I'd done mostly 3D, but as a new startup kind of studio, we weren't. Most of the work we were getting was little kind of 2D kind of stuff. So kind of learned how to do compositing there, really. And uh, as did all of us. And, uh, you know, I think at that point I, I, I sort of learned how to do it and then started teaching other people how to do it. And uh, that was kind of the genesis of showing people how to do compositing-related things, I guess.
1: And you, and you were also developing a compositing software there as well, right?
0: So uh, eventually, I mean, the, the timeline was... Uh, you know, I was working at Sony. I was purely a production guy, uh, eventually, you know, t- to the level of supervising the visual effects stuff as a CG soup. And and uh,
1: we had in-house... So just how... Go ahead. Just to get how... how what sort of period are we talking about? Like the, the, getting the chronology sort
0: of... What, what year down. was that? Oh, I don't know.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, so from when you, st- you started at Sony and then you sort of over... A certain amount of years moved to Supervisor. I
0: was just curious. Uh, it was sort of a little on and off stuff. I mean, like, I, I, there was a couple really early. I mean, I think Speed was sort of my first. Is that right? I'm not sure what my first Supervisor credit was. I think uh, I know on Speed was probably the first one where I could really say I earned it. Um, it's funny because Speed was, you know, there was a lot of little movies that came in. As part of the studio, we, we weren't necessarily... Uh, we were sort of the pickup guys in some ways, especially early on. Uh, it was just sort of like, "You guys have people that can fix this sort of thing, or can you do a little bit of this or a little bit of that?" Um, just kind of proving what we could do and learning how to do it. Uh, but Speed was kind of—it came in, and I remember reading the script for it, and I, I read through the script. It's a fast read; it's a fairly short script, and it's you know it's mostly action, right? And I sort of read it and I'm like, "God, there's not much here, right?" I mean, I, I see the action stuff, but just in terms of a movie. Who's gonna want to Who's gonna want to watch this? Because uh, it didn't feel like there was a whole lot there, and and of course, then when the director Yann came out and and put the whole thing together, it was this amazing action movie. Uh, but that was probably so. That was a few years into it that I I was sort of started supervising people, but you know, it was there wasn't a clear growth path these days. I think most studios have a pretty clear growth path for people where you start off and you know. Maybe you start off grabbing coffee for people, but you certainly start off doing fairly straightforward, simple tasks and you just kinda you know, you show up and you show that you're you're capable of doing whatever people toss at you and you're willing to do it and you have the right attitude. And I mean that's if I ever talk to people that are just getting started, that's the thing I really try to underscore is yeah, you gotta be smart and know your tools and really learn this stuff. But it's so much about this is true of any industry, right? It's so much about working with the other people and, and making sure you keep your bosses happy. And uh, it's doing great work, but it's great work in the context of making sure you're doing the great work that people want you to do. So, but yeah, you know, so, so a few years in, I was starting to supervise bits and pieces. And, you know, for a long time there, I was back and forth. I would do shots, and most supervisors would still be doing shots uh, as well. Um, but to your question of sort of when the software was coming about, it really wasn't, uh, we, I mean, we were always developing in-house software at the studios as, as any studio would do. And so I spent a lot of time giving feedback on a variety of the tools, um, but I wasn't anything more than just one of the artists sort of saying, gosh, it'd be cool if it could do this or, you know, it would make a lot more sense to me if I could do this with it kind of thing. And I think most, most artists, at least technical ones, I mean, I come from a fairly technical background. I've got a degree in computer science way back in the day. Um, so, you know, you can kind of say, I understand how this could work, and here's an idea of what we could do, that kind of thing.
1: On Flickr, plus past, you had a lot of index cards with the software GUI on them, which I thought were amazing, because there were sort of these hand-drawn sketches of the whole interface. Yeah. Back, back The to- software, which, in case people have not used it, was Shake. Yes, yeah. So Shake,
0: So okay, so I'll tell the rest of the story then. So uh, after a number of years doing production, um, I just finished up... Uh, a, a big show, Robert Zemeckis' uh, contact with Jody Foster in it and um, it was a great show it was it was a hard show that was sort of that was right after Ken Ralston had come down from ILM to be the head of Sony Imageworks and so he had convinced Robert Zemeckis, yeah we can we can do this work do this level of of high end work here. But it was a big show, and it was definitely stretching Sony's capabilities at that point. And uh, a lot of hours on that show. Boy. And it turned out great. And and the movie turned out great. But it was one of those things where, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a break after this one. And sort of in the interim, a couple of guys that had, uh, well, sort of one of our lead programmers had decided he was going to go off and, and start it up. And he went off with one of, his, one of the other animators. And um, a few other guys were kind of getting ready to be done with production for a while as well. And so that was a company that uh, eventually we called Nothing Real. And the core of it was originally just a a set of command line tools for compositing called Shake. And they kind of convinced me to come on board. Like I said, I was just sort of finished up with contact and a little burned out with doing production. And so they had convinced me to come on board and uh, uh, sort of spec out Number one, how it would how an inter, you know user interface to compositing package would look like, and then also just the ability to talk to customers that you know from the perspective of somebody that knows how to do it, as opposed to just ivory tower, we're a developer and we've got this compositing package, what should it do kind of thing so it was a good fit because you know I had a technical background in coding from way back when, although it's been forever since I've written code, and I had a background doing visual effects and doing compositing and I knew the guys that were doing it and I'm somewhat familiar with what we had built you know in-house that was pretty similar to what ended up being Shake so uh yeah so yeah I just you know back then there was no Figma or anything uh, that you could sit there and mock up user interfaces really quickly with so um it was all I mean you know I drew it all by hand and me and a couple other guys and then the uh developers pretty much coded a whole user interface layer as well by hand. So these days, you'd be gluing a lot of pieces together instead. But
1: Amazing. And so Shake, uh, I mean, a lot of our listeners have never used Shake. It was the first compositing software I used that I actually got a job with. I mean, I used After Effects before actually, but the first thing that I actually was employed to use, and I was just at the tail end when Apple killed it. So Apple bought it and killed it. which is the sad end of that software. But Tis. the question I had is, it's very similar to Houdini in terms of the interface. Although, see, Houdini's a 3D app. But in terms of the way you connect the nodes and you look at them, and I was wondering who was inspired by who? In oh, terms.
0: boy. Good question.
1: Um, I mean, I, I
0: Houdini was around before Shake came out, and I had certainly used Houdini. I, did, I used Houdini a lot on content actually doing some of the uh, um space stuff that at the very beginning of the show uh, of the film there's this giant fly through the universe kind of thing and we used a houdini quite a bit on that um but i mean before that i there you know the node graph kind of stuff was around in maya and and, and that sort of thing too so it's certainly i mean the, the node based compositing certainly wasn't um that the, something that that we had done ourselves the idea was around but it just sort of makes sense it's one of the things that just drives me nuts when i have to use after effects is that it doesn't really embrace that sort of thing and you get this these stacks and stacks of stuff that's just for me really hard to to sort of see what's going on half the time so it just sort of made sense i guess and you know, that I think all the developers knew that that's what it needed to be too. It's just the only sensible way to kind of represent the the kind of complexity that you can have in in a compositing script of how things need to wire together.
1: Well, I said the similarity. It was also the fact that it's node graph, but it's got the similar idea that you you would click on the the little button on the left to view that the, the output of that node. Yeah. That was separate from the selection.
0: Yeah, all the little
1: which is quite, well, and different to how Nuke does it, where it's a viewer node. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's
0: yeah. I couldn't tell you, you know, where exactly any of these, a lot of these little things came up from originally, but it just makes sense, right? That you need to understand the flow of it. I mean, the, the a whole. I mean, I could talk for hours about you know my personal opinion for how people need to interact with software and and the ability to understand when you're building something as complex as a compositing tree, uh, the ability to be able to kind of narrow down on some small pieces of it and understand it and, you know, putting in things like being able to group a bunch of operations together and collapse them into something that looks like a single operation just so you can understand. I mean, you know, you've seen anybody that's done big compositing scripts. They can just be enormous and ridiculous. And, uh, you know, the thing that Shake was able to do and packages like Nuke can do and all that is be smart enough with their kind of memory management where you can do it all in one big script. Because there there were other tools prior to that, but you'd be doing so many little bits and pieces and pre-composites and, you know, you, you... get one little piece working and then bake that out as a layer and save it off and then bring it in. But if you realize suddenly that something was wrong with that, you go back to your original process and you have to put everything through it again. So the ability to have it all in one big script, you know, sometimes for better or worse, but the ability to have it all in one one big flow graph was, was pretty key when it came to doing serious production that was efficient. Uh, and that's kind of what it's all about, right?
1: One of the famous traits of Shake is that there was no undo or no reliable <laughs> undo. Um, <laughs> I was kind of curious about that because it, it was right to the end. I mean, it, it wasn't just nothing real. It got bought by Apple, was launched on other platforms, was used on huge shows. You know, I think Dina last used it on Inception with their in house one. And all through this entire history, I mean, in one sense, the node graph kind of replaced your undo because you would copy the node and you had a copy of where you were right. if worked on something but it's kind of interesting that this production level software it still shocks people that you know that you couldn't really just press ctrl z and it, get back it, to where it, you were it worked.
0: shocked me too <laughs> it's it certainly was not a design feature i'll tell you that um oh god it brings back nightmares of me fighting with the developers and saying we got to put it in there and I, I don't even remember. who Somebody said to me, well, there's no undo in life, is there? And, I, <laughs> and I was like, well, it's true, but it <laughs> doesn't mean I don't want one. So I uh, uh, yeah, I mean, at some level, you know, we were a small group of developers, and we were constantly chasing, you know, what's what's the feature that needs to be in there? And you could look at undo as a feature, but you know there were ways around it, and careful compositors could do exactly like you said, where you just make a copy of some nodes and stick them off to the side, and know that you're gonna do it. Uh, but no, I mean it, it was terrible. I mean I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna apologize for the, you know any sort of grand scheme of we intended it to not have an undo. It just for what I can't even remember what it was, but there was some kind of deep technical issues with keeping track of it i think it had to do with there was too many different places where you know do you put the undo at the level of if i change a slider do i undo it or if i change the topology of the graph do i undo it it was just i don't remember what it, all it was but i'll apologize uh, many years later for to everybody that had to deal with the fact that they couldn't undo <coughs> some horrible change they made but to be fair it bit me plenty of times myself too so you know i uh, <laughs> I guess it does. <laughs> it does teach you good hygiene for saving regularly.
1: Uh, absolutely. And to be honest, the um the idea of an undo for life is is a high concept movie idea. <laughs> <which I> Trumpet. <taught laughs> yep. Made. Yes.
0: I'll get but to work on that. So.
1: Um and so contact, uh since you put it up, did you work on the famous mirror shot uh, not
0: really. I was there when they shot it. Um it was uh I mean I remember when actually I was there when they shot half of it since it was shot in two pieces um now it was uh it was that was done in flame it was all done in flame uh at that point uh tracking was it we didn't have great tracking tools flame had much better tracking tools and that shot was all about you know getting the getting the match move to work right and everything and um a really excellent flame artist uh Mark Holmes did that shot and i remember. I remember when he put it together and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, that's that's going to be oh. the shot people remember. So, and it was. It was just one of those things where uh I mean, I think everybody was just sort of like, you know, you're going with it and you just and you just sort of stop. You're like, what did I just see? And uh so yeah, it was a great shot. But no, that was uh, I can't take any any credit for that other than being one of the people one of the first people to say, "Wow, that's a great shot." So, but, yeah, I mostly, I mean, I, the, in Contact, I, I mostly dealt with um, the, uh, the opening sequence, the giant pullback uh, through the galaxy, which was a great, great fun, and uh, uh, a lot of miscellaneous stuff, and then a lot of the stuff at the end when they're kind of on that surreal sort of beach uh, and getting some of that to come together. And there was a lot of flame, inferno, whatever it was at the time done there as well is this is flame even a thing is it inferno now what the hell do they call it now
1: flame is still going No flame weirdly <laughs> it's the one survivor of all the they had all these things flint and smoke and they all died now it's flame um it's biggest in editorial i was actually using it at the mill um but not for compositing for the timeline so it, they'll give you an ad yep you would conform it into Flame and you would put your shots in your movie compositing in you. Interesting. um, And Warner Brothers, I know, use it to conform movies. Um, So, yeah, the conform level online editing capabilities and the kind of level of compositing you can do within online, it's still rocking and rolling. But I mean, it's really sort of a... Main compositing tool, it's kind of gone.
0: Is it? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know... I mean, it was... An extraordinarily expensive piece of kit it was uh you know especially at the time when it was running on those high-end silicon graphics machines and all that um but it had some cool stuff and just the interactivity of it was was amazing you know it was it was fun you know there was this brief period of time there where the flame artists were kind of the the gods of the the post world i mean more so in commercials uh, but just because of the yeah. level of productivity and you know you'd get the guys that partnered up with their favorite commercial director and they were lauded and tossed all a whole lot of money back then i mean i remember trying to hire yeah. flame artists uh, at you know compositing uh visual effects studio kind of salaries and uh, they were like what well, do you realize how much i can make doing commercials so it was a it was a t- yeah. tough
1: they were getting transfer fees, like like um, like athletes, you know, like yep. footballers. Yeah. You know, the company wouldn't just pay them a big salary; they would pay the company they were taking them from yep. a transfer fee. Yep. To take them. It yeah, was, I re- I mean I remember
0: I was I was dating a a gal. who was a flame artist at the time, and it was just like she was paying for it exactly. But yeah, it's interesting too to me how flame, like you said, that you know, sort of kind of the editorial side of things, how much compositing work is, is keeps getting pushed to editorial. I mean, it only makes sense, right? And if you make, them, make it easy enough that you have somebody whose skill is editing, doesn't have to know the ins and outs of the compositing, um, there's so much you can do if you have the right tool. I think that's only going to continue. I mean, I'm sure it's, I haven't looked at, you know, the latest in in Avid or whatnot, but you can definitely see that a lot of this stuff used to be resolve. Shots. yeah right yeah i mean resolve has this whole it's, they, node view and everything right
1: that they, they built fusion and stuck it in there basically so That's that right. was your main that would have been your main competitor right, when you were running shake yeah
0: fusion was definitely one of the fusion was one of the ones we always ran up against um didn't we tended to you know to, people tended at the higher end to, to buy shake more often Um, but fusion, you know, stuck around forever and they were, you know, they had a lot of cool stuff in it too. So.
1: I, I feel like where shake was strongest is actually when I was learning compositing, it just was, just made so much sense. Uh, And that's kind of why I think it ties. And the other thing about shake that i was that I really enjoyed was the manual, because <laughs> up until then, I'd read things like the Autodesk, the Maya manual, the After Effects manual. They just were, like, incomprehensible, even for simple operations. Yep. It was it was clearly written for engineers, by engineers, the audience being other engineers. Um, and, you know, Shake was like having a chat with your mates down the pub about how to composite, yep. And but people, mates that are really good at compositing, you know
0: yeah i mean so that the whole manual was uh pretty much written by my my dear friend peter warner who unfortunately passed away last year um but he uh just an amazing amazing writer i mean a great artist he was he was an animator that i worked with um but also just an amazing writer and you know we he started writing this stuff and you know that's really tongue-in-cheek kind of uh documentation style and we you know i We talked about it. I'm like, is this gonna fly? And we're all kind of let's find out. I mean, you know, who 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 cares, right? If people enjoy it and it gets the point across, so you know, it always you look at the shake manual and you look at the book I wrote, which is um, rather dry in comparison. And uh, but you know, we we sort of knew that that's what we were coming up with. Peter was writing this thing that was gonna be fun to read, and I was writing something that was hopefully um, gonna. Be around for a while, but also kind of wasn't quite quite as much fun. And he was just a funnier guy than I am, so that's probably a lot of it too. But yeah, the manual was was good. I st- I've still had people like getting in touch with me on LinkedIn saying, "You don't have a copy of that manual? I just want to go read it for fun." So it's still, it's out there, <laughs> which is
1: which is not something you would say about any other manual. No, I either. don't think so.
0: Um,
1: so. I mean, I think you know. I think we had.
0: Yeah, that's it. To to your point about how Shake sort of made sense uh, from from the composite. I mean, we had a huge advantage. You know, if you look at, and you know, I spent some time working for the Foundry uh, after I, I left Apple, and and looking at Nuke, and there was talk at the time about, you know, should we revamp the Nuke user interface and try and make it a little more. I always found it slightly unintuitive, and obviously that's because I developed Shake, so it was nothing but intuitive for me but you know i think nuke i mean nuke was a piece of production software that just grew out of production right and so every time they needed something they would bolt something on there and uh i think it got a little unwieldy at times i mean it's an incredibly powerful piece of software but there's still stuff about it that kind of bugged me with you know the way the user interface is laid out uh, but you know that's I can't really take that much credit for it because they have, you know, Shake had the huge advantage of we'd put together compositing software and then we got to start from scratch and build something from the ground up that was, you know, really designed to be a piece of software um, that kind of built on everything that we had screwed up the first time around or building production software at the studio. So, a different kind of beast. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that we really tried but- to do with Shake was trying to just make it really. Kind of thin at some level in terms of, it was just a direct representation of what your your compositing graph was doing. It was just you know very direct representation of what you were thinking, how you laid it out.
1: Yeah, and one well, actually, the new Kinesis iteration has got a lot of Shake like attributes. So for new users who may have never used or heard of Shake, for example, if you're a new user. You'll be connecting masks, you'll have a mask input on almost all your grade nodes and so on. And that's a shake feature that yeah. wasn't originally used. You used to pipe the mats and have different mats with different channels. Yep. Um, and then actually, you, oh, you just plug a mat into the side. <laughs> that's a shake Feature. Yeah, and now they've actually recently they've just um, added the shake to remove your nose. <laughs> excellent, tree. excellent. They put that is a new feature in new- <laughs> like thirteen. So, nope. it's coming for ten, fifteen
0: years later. But good, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I think you. Know, there's. I'm curious I, if anybody listens to this podcast and is still using shake because I. You know when it. And we can talk about the the end end of days for shake, but you know, at the at the end of it all, when Apple decided to kill it, um, we actually did uh, provide source code to some of the bigger studios out there. You said you worked at The Mill. I think The Mill bought a copy of source code. A few, a few places, you know, got a copy of source code and ended up integrating into their workflow. And so I'm curious if, it seems like a lot of the London studios in particular, uh, I'm curious if any place like, you know, d or Mill or whoever still have bits and pieces of Shake laying around in their workflow, or is it just too far gone at this point?
1: I think now, yeah, I think I think it's gone. From what I understand, from speaking to artists who were there, um, and I wasn't there, but um, Inception was the last Shake show at DNEG. Got it. Uh, and that was it. That was. Is a pretty good swan song. I mean, you've got to say that is. It, that you is. know, the last comps of these, they composited Inception in it. They well, like it. You know what you're going to say. That's so. good. That's a good story. So <laughs> uh, I'll stick with that one. You've at this point, you've been doing 3D at Alias. You've gone to Sony. You've become a compositor. You've been training people in compositing. You've left and developed and promoted a compositing software, which was the dominant one for a long time. And that then at some point you left again and you did something new. You wrote a book, about it? Wrote a book. Which? Yeah,
0: I mean, the book... How did this... Well, the book started... I mean, it technically it started when I was uh, still at Imageworks and we did a SIGGRAPH class myself and uh, a couple other guys, Jerome Chan and Gary Jackamuck. you know, kind of... You know, we were all sort of 3D artists and uh, so this is pretty early on. And uh, we just did a course on compositing because nobody had really done a compositing course at at SIGGRAPH, you know, and just given a talk about w- what is the basics of compositing. And so we put something together that was, you know, very broad overview. I don't remember how long the course was, but I think it was just a half day course and, um, you know. Tossed in a few examples from whatever the state of the art was at the time. Somebody can go back. I'm sure, you know, the SIGGRAPH archives have the course somewhere on there. And, um, I mean, I ultimately kind of fell to me to pull all the pieces together for that course. I did most of the, I had a good chunk of the writing on it. And, uh, you know, so I had that. And whenever, um, I mean, I was sort of thinking about doing a book at that point. It's just—it's just one of those things where you know, if you've worked your way up and then you're you're to the level where you're supervising and you're hiring a lot of people, you're also you basically become a teacher, right? You basically have to explain to them, you know, s- specifics of what this how this studio works, but also just a lot of learning for the you know the new the the novices about how compositing works or how three D works or whatever works. And so I just found myself sort of explaining the same things and the same basic concepts, and not just compositing concepts, but just visual concepts. You know how to how to shadows. You know add up kind of things, and you know understanding where the light's hitting uh, to to make your composite look real, and all of those all of those pieces that a good artist has to develop the eye for. And I just kept sort of saying the same things over and over again, and it's just like you know, some, somebody needs to write a book about this thing. So it was right when I, right when I left Sony, um, and started doing the software company. I'm like, I, you know, I should. I'm also going to take this time to write a book on it, and it it dovetailed nicely because same thing. If you're trying to sell software, the more people that know how to use it, the more people that you know are capable of using it to the the best level, the better. So. Yeah, it, it it was just sort of you know my my world was a whole lot of compositing from a couple different directions there for a while, uh, which is always funny to me since like I said I kind of started out in the three D world, but um, you know I, but I love compositing and I loved I just the fact that you sort of are the person that gets to put the final touches on on the shot and and really make it you know make it sweet at the end of it all I think is is a, a nice place to be I mean the downside is. You know, shit rolls downhill, right? So you're at the end of the chain, <laughs> and uh, inevitably, it's the compositing guys who are pulling the all nighters to get the the shot out the door. You know, the, the 3D artists have delivered all their elements, and you know, at least back in the day, it was where you, know, you everybody else was done with their shots, and the poor compositing team was just sweating bullets to hit the deadline. But
1: I think that's always going to be. The one yeah, it right? is. Because, you know, um, yeah, uh, past the comp, past the comp. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and you know. This lighting's good, yeah, final final lighting. It's definitely not final comp. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things I really like, I was looking at, I mean, I know that this is a second edition, so I presume there were some revisions, but I, I did really like um, just the structure of it. Um, I've just got a copy open here just out of the camera, but mm-hmm. um, there, there was the fact that one of the... The first chapter okay gives you an intro- introduction and and, a, and an actual uh, example of compositing from way before digital, in fact, way before film, which is this this photo image. Yes, yeah. photo composite composite, here. composite uh, um,
0: photograph. Yeah.
1: Um, but then I like that once you get second secondhand chapter, and probably these are the the I think the bits that are most relevant to this day and things like this chapter, whole chapter about learning to see. And just observing colours, observing light, observing shadows, um, observing, you know, all of these things, all these kind of observational skills that, you know, often if I find a a new artist as a junior coming in, that's what they're missing. You know, a lot of them have, like, really amazing software skills and they know all these kind of crazy modern tricks and, and they're getting, and there are obviously more and more modern tricks you can learn, but sometimes you know they they can't for example tell a lens just by looking at the yep, at the kind of arrangement of, of objects in space and things like that there's like little observational skills that just really really and I like the fact that that's like right there front and center of the, of the whole thing before you even get into anything and it doesn't actually talk about any specific software so the fact that this book is you know now,
0: well, and that's the second edition probably. So I don't fact know. Is so, like, yeah, 15
1: years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it kind
0: of uh, had to be that way that I just couldn't have written a book that didn't talk about why you're doing what you're doing, you know, what, what what's the point of doing this compositing stuff is you're trying to make stuff look real and how do you, how do you even talk about that without talking about, you know, look, you know learning to see what what real looks like. Um You know, ultimately, that's this—that's a skill that can't necessarily be taught. It's just somebody that you know, and some people never quite seem to get it, and other people are just sort of naturals at it. But just basic things, like I said, you know, how many times did I see people have a shadow of three different elements and they just layer them on top so the shadows add up, even though there's only one light source? It's just like, no, you know, (laughs) it's only one light that's being blocked. You don't get to have three times the shadows uh, adding up on top of things. So, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I you know I wrote the book intentionally to be, and this is just being lazy and greedy, right? I didn't want to be, have to be revising this thing all the time. So I tried to write something that could stick around for a while and it would be as timeless as possible. And that's intentionally why I didn't put any specific, you know, compositing software f- in the forefront of that. I mean, otherwise it would have been a manual, you know, Peter was writing the manual for Shake and you know, in spite of the fact that the other people would kind of nudge me towards, well, don't you think you should be using Shake in all these examples? And he said, no, I just want to have very genetic kind of things. And it. Uh, I think it's, it's done well just because of that, because you can still pick it up. And most of this, I mean, there's things in there that, you know, if I ever did do an updated version of this, it would just be, you know, here's the list of things that my book is, that's now completely obsolete out of my book. And uh, I think that, but there's you know the basic stuff I think is still there. But yeah, I mean, who the hell needs to know how to do a convolution kernel anymore? You got a button and you don't even have to think about it. Uh, you know, for me, the the crazy thing is sort of what's what is this space going to look like in another five years with all of the uh, the AI tools? Because you know, up until a couple of years ago, everything was kind of iterative and building on top of existing concepts, right? I mean, you know, you can you can. Have a whole bunch of extra channels and there's all kinds of cool stuff you can do and and there would be new algorithms for how things could fit together. But, you know, these days, the sense of just tossing an AI, I mean I'm seeing papers that are being published that are literally, you know, teaching an AI to do compositing. And I say that not because I you know, everybody is 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 worried about okay, when is this gonna take my job? And I don't I don't think that's gonna happen right away, but I think what it's going to do is just give the artists, the people that know how to see, uh, the ability to be so much more productive. I really think that I mean, my God, the amount of time that we would spend trying to pull a clean blue screen or something like that, you know, in certain situations, and it's not like it's trivial uh, for every one of them nowadays, but clearly, I mean, I, you tell me I assume that most studios are have ways of Keying things that are starting to become based on AI that are, you know, just make it easy, (laughs) so much easier.
1: I mean, at the moment, it's still iterative and it still feels like there's, yes, you can do it faster and you can iterate faster, but you're still using a lot of the the brute force. Um, The techniques aren't sort of massively, like you said, there's an iterative improvement. You can definitely see everything's a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. You've got a few more tools, you've got a few more things to do with your edges and so on. Having said that, this is when the AI is rolling in. And actually, I mean, most of the compositing software is, is pretty old. I mean, all of it, you know, is, is built on stop of structures that were around at the same time as Shake, right? Like yeah. Nuke, uh, days from around the same time. I'm like, sure, I'm sure, you certain know, certain that's, yeah, there's no reason to be it right if it's kind of doing what it needs to do. Uh,
0: it's, you know, I, I, it's kind of amazing in some ways that... Uh, Nuke in particular has has had as long of a run as it had and nobody came along. I think that partially speaks to, you know, it's not that profitable of a space that somebody can come in and and devote the resources to recreate or create a new piece of software that's as deep as Nuke is. I mean, there's just so much in there. And, you know, it would take a a massive team to try and come up with a new compositing software that's uh, duplicating what nuke is capable of doing and, and and why bother because everybody's got their workflows based on it um but i think i mean i haven't i'm not completely up to speed on this i know that like there's the what's the company runway um is a is a company that's starting to produce pure ai kind of tools for yeah. doing similar sorts of work um but it's going it's gonna take a whole different workflow it's gonna take a completely different mindset for some of this and I mean, that's gonna be fascinating to me to see where where this all ends up. It's you know, but I don't I think the artists are still gonna to have to be involved. Because, you know, the key thing that I mean, I've spent a lot of time playing in Mid Journey, and it's cool. It's cool as shit what comes out of it, right? I mean, you look at that stuff and it just it just blows your mind. Um, but then when I'm like, oh, but I really want to tweak this one little tiny thing that's bugging me, I mean, forget it, right? You just, you, know, you you can't come up with a, a series of text prompts that says, you know, I need this yeah. this highlight uh, decreased by uh, 10% and I want the angle of the head to be tilted by five degrees. You know, it's just eventually we'll get there, kind of, maybe. Um, but I think it's going to be more of this kind of world where, you know, you, you have control images and you you may generate, you're going to be generating, I mean, this is already what people are doing, right? You generate sort of a mock-up using a basic 3D posing package or something and then you let the AI do some work on it and it's going to be some back and forth and it's it blows my mind how much is going to change in, in the next you know five years I mean the next five years are going to be so radically different than the past 15 years in terms of the change that's going to happen
1: yeah I mean you see a better nuke there's a the copycat note so essentially uh one example is you can You might do, um, you might work on a few frames and use that as your training data, then you rather than tracking the patch across, you use that as training data and then you run the training on that shot, on other shots. And then this is where the cool thing about, um, of course, AI based workflows like that is if you have 25 shots that are pretty much the same thing, I mean, on good omens i am just saying because I've got the jumper on. But (laughs) he had these contact lenses that are like cat eyes or uh, reptile eyes. Um, But while he's acting, (laughs) they just kept rotating. So there were a lot of shots. I mean, they took 20 minutes. They were pretty quick and easy to do. But there were just, you know, all through the show, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these shots (laughs) where his contact lenses had rotated around. Now, that's the sort of thing where... You know, an AI tool would would storm through it, right? You would would do 20 of them and you would train it and then you would let it rock and roll and you might even have a tool that you can just give the editor and just go apply apply this. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, you know, the the, the
0: editor will start to pick up more and more of these things too. In some ways, it's a better place for some of this just because, uh, you know, if if you can have a single button that an AI can do something and the editor doesn't have to understand much behind it, it's... uh, i yeah i could i could see it i could see it ending up in editorial as much as anything
1: uh or or even in resolve i mean the the you know the, there's the tools to remove i mean in sound there's the tools to remove noises and, and so on and you know they're pretty crazy what they can do um so if you had the guys from uh, nothing real or another startup came up right. and said we want you to build a new compositing package like now
0: well, my first plan would probably be to see if somebody would uh let me go sit back in production for a few hours and figure out what the what the hell the world looks like these days. I I, I don't yeah. I mean, I, it's obviously it's it's AI based. It's something where I think you would go back to first principles of what are the problems that are being solved. You know what 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 are the roadblocks that you hit when you're putting together a shot? Because part of me feels like it's probably not. It's not always going to be a compositing solution. I think you're going to find. Something else where there's this feedback loop between here's the image and I mean, there's kind of two things, right? There's compositing is used for fixing stuff, right? There's a whole lot of like you talked about the, the contact lenses and, and all that kind of fixing level of work um, is sort of in one bucket. And I think you just sort of need to figure out what kind of problems there are. But I and then the other half of it would be full on image creation, you know, full synthetic imagery or nearly full synthetic imagery. Um, uh, and, and I think that's probably where it's really going to get weird, where you're going to be, you know, we always used to joke back in the day of, uh, because most, you know, most directors and producers didn't really understand this technology that well back then. Right. And so for them, the joke was always, yeah, you know, they want us to press the generate a dinosaur button and uh and it's easy right just hand it over to the vfx guys they press the button for generating a dinosaur and there you go uh, but man these days it's sort of like there's going to be some kind of crazy feedback loop a lot of it may be on set of i need to see my creature in this scene and you can give me a quick rough comp that's probably fully articulated and animated and, and ready to go and uh just, you know, having the AI produce images and you can sit there and spitball it. And so, I mean, I probably wouldn't do a classic compositing package so much as I would come up with more tools for, you know, onset AI based integration of putting cool shit on the page, right? Putting cool images on the screen and uh, and seeing how they all kind of fit together. For me, what's, what's exciting is sort of the idea that you know, we can actually. I'm I'm probably more excited about where animated movies can go with all of this. That you know, it's it's and sort of where that line between an animated movie and a live action movie. I, it feels like there's such a hard line right now, and you, know, you either say that looks real or that is looking stylized. And but even the style, you know, every Pixar movie. I mean, beautiful stuff, but they all kind of look the same. It's all kind of the you know the same basic style. You I know, mean, I want to see some cool ass thing that maybe looks like a watercolor, but you know has true volumetric sense to it, and you know that kind of stuff is is I would find that more interesting. You know, tell stories that need a different look.
1: Mm. I mean, there's Sony I mean, I guess you got into the Spider Verse is very different, and the Mitchells versus the Machines that are doing this painterly look, and then you had you know working uh, ILM did Rango, which used their sort of photoreal approach and made it look really weird and yep. crazy. So there's there are elements of those kind of different approaches going. I guess Pixar's got its house style and it works, it's successful, so I guess they're going to stick with it. But it's yep. good for other people to come in and do other things.
0: Yeah, I, I'm certain... Yeah, and I'm certainly not, uh, you know, Pixar is fully capable of of pushing the envelope in a whole lot of different directions. But like you said, it's sort of, it is a house style and it's sort of, um, so it's interesting to see what, you know, who's going to come out with something that's very different. I mean, Into the Spider-Verse is a great example, though, where, you know, there's bits and pieces of that, you know, just little tiny snippets where they do something that's completely different style. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's see more of that. That looks so cool. Another so, one was the Lego
1: movie where... you know they just went there's no motion blur you know the motion blur is bits of lego everything is made of bits of lego all the explosions are bits of lego right you know it's a a stop motion movie but it's cg
0: it's all cg yep yeah exactly so yeah so i i just think that the the ai stuff is gonna i mean first of all it's just gonna give people a lot more ability to spitball different weird ideas uh different looks just based on that but then i think you know is this you know it's only going to be you know a matter of a year or so before you can put out full animated movies that are you know mid-journey-esque kind of thing so we'll see it's it's cool to me because it's it's certainly democratizing who can make these movies and who can do uh, a feature-length movie and i it's kind of trite to say it. And I think a lot of people say that, oh, yeah, you know, anybody's going to be able to make this in their basement. And they're not, because most people don't have the visual sense to make something that really looks cool and don't have the storytelling sense to really put it together in a compelling way. But what it does do is take things a, a generation removed to where you can get a couple or a few talented people together who have their own specialties and can produce something that is going to be competitive with you know, the, the stuff that the big studios do. Uh, but it's not, it's going to take some very dedicated people to do that, you know, at least for the next few years.
1: What do you think, of, of, have you been following some of these sort of ethical aspects that are around AI? I know. I,
0: it's a, I'm no expert. It's, it's a really tough, I, I don't have a strong position on it. I mean, I totally get the sense that, you know, a lot of these artists, their work was used to train uh, the AI to do certain things. Full stop. There's no question about that, right? And uh, but then again, you know, a lot of traditional artists looked at a whole bunch of other things too to develop their own style. Uh, I think it's kind of a false equivalency to say, you know, a human does it or an AI does it and that's the same thing because it's not. I don't think that's a fair comparison. Uh, I guess my, my hope is that as new training models, or as new models are trained, uh, somebody's going to do the hard work of figuring out attribution and being able to trace backwards. You know what parts of this went into that. Uh, artists are going to have to be able to opt out and say, "I don't want my stuff used for this this training data." Um, honestly, I don't think it's going to make much difference if certain artists opt out of something, and it's probably a kind of a lost cause. But having something where you know, you could go in and say, ah, you know, there's some micropayments due to 100 different artists because this really hits in the zone of, you know. And, and I would hope that maybe if enough of that's happening and the micropayments are in place that, you know, a prolific artist that has a unique style that somebody's kind of wanting to emulate. Uh, it just sort of algorithmically spits out that, hey, you know, here's a here's a check for some amount of money that kind of reflects what was spent to create this. So... But man, it's a hard problem.
1: So like hip hop and sampling of of old seventies artists and that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: very true. And then and that took a lot of lawsuits, and it's still ongoing stuff. And I, and I think there's been some weird decisions made that aren't necessarily fair on that one either. But at least people are, you know, are trying to. Yeah, who was it that? I mean, it, it was some artist that looked at the the credits uh, uh, of another artist's work you know the the, the credits on, on the album and how many writers had been credited right and they were like i don't understand how many how can this many people have been used to write the song and then they explained it that you know this is this is the samples that were used and these people are getting credit because samples were was used uh, and i think that's cool i think i think that's fair it's it gets a little unwieldy when you're trying to you know figure out where you put that credit list since we don't have album artwork anymore in the back of an album to look at but um yeah, I, I I just hope that somehow they can kind of be able to credit back to the artists that sort of defined the style.
1: I mean you would think it would be able to even hyperlink you to the artist, right? I mean we're in the I mean we don't have the album art, but we do have the ability yeah. to kind of find any artist right. or anyone in the world if you want right. to. Um and so I guess as we're sort of uh coming towards it before we sort of Move to the end. I really wanted to ask you what you're doing now because I, my last, um, the last podcast I heard you on, which was a long time ago, which was on a fixed guide. Um, you had left um, VFX and you had moved, I believe, to Amazon. Is that
0: right? I did, I worked for Amazon for a while. Um, and,
1: and now you work for something else. So I was curious about what the post post VFX, um, Ron Brickman is doing.
0: A whole lot of little stuff and trying not to have a regular nine to five. Um, yeah, I mean, I was at Amazon for a while. That was a completely right turn. It was, I mean, make a long story short. I was at a conference. I was kind of talking about visual effectsy sort of things, but it was after I'd mostly moved out of the visual effects world, after I'd left Apple. And um, some guy named Jeff Bezos happened to be in the audience. And uh, we chatted afterwards and I you know I I think I was doing the second edition of my book at the time and I was like you know it'd be cool if as a book writer I could have some of these tools for writing and connect with the audience and so anyway I wrote you know some half deranged manifesto and sent it over to Bezos because he'd given me his card and you know he writes back to me writes the email back you know we've been thinking about a lot of this stuff which I later realized was probably his legal disclaimer. We've been thinking about a lot of this stuff, but uh we need somebody that could kinda implement some of it. Is that you? You know. It was a very Jeff kinda way of hiring somebody, I guess. So so yeah, I worked at Amazon for a while doing things that were related to book technology, you know, and bits and pieces of it kind of touched on what you can do in a Kindle and all that kind of thing. It was it was sort of a weird experience. Um Amazon has a very Amazonian way of doing things. And uh, I, I, I didn't last more than a couple of years there. I was just kind of like, yeah, this is not, I mean, it was a combination of things. It was up in Seattle and I'm used to sunny Southern California. So, you know, too much rain, but, uh, and I got, and I got family back and all kinds of, you know, a lot of good reasons, but also just the Amazon kind of methodology was, uh, was fairly rigid in some ways uh, and I was just getting tired of working for big companies too. So, so as to what I'm doing now. I mean, I've, I've sort of, you know, I've bounced around. We, I mean, some friends had done some iPhone apps uh, a while back, but those, you know, we've shut all those down because they never really got much traction. Mostly, of what I'm doing is kind of talking to tech companies. I'm investing in tech companies, you know, kind of doing the angel investing thing, uh, with some interesting technology companies that are not necessarily, even close to being, you know, compositing or visual effects related. Uh, But yeah, I mean, between just, like I said, chatting with friends and bouncing ideas off and then doing a little bit of uh, angel investing here and there, that's kind of what takes up my day. So, yeah. Keeping busy, though. It sure seems to be keeping me busy no matter what.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're not, You would. It sounds like very much like oh, you just you could sit on a beach and, and do investments in the morning. But there's stuff, I guess, that keeps you keeps you scratching that, your head ahead. Most of the day. There are right?
0: days that well, you know that. I mean, I've got a couple of <laughs> couple of kids that fill up the rest of my time. So, but yeah, it's uh, I kind of got a, a late start on on having kids. So I've got some somewhat younger kids that are still keeping me plenty busy. So between that and. Uh, Yeah. Just sort of trying to keep my, my fingers in interesting things. That's kind of what's keeping me busy.
1: Sounds like a good place to be though.
0: Can't complain. I cannot complain.
1: Very cool. So as a closing uh, notes, what, I mean, you did actually touch upon some advice, but what advice would you give someone starting out in, in VFX or someone just leaving VFX and thinking of moving on to something else?
0: I mean, you know, starting in VFX is kind of like I said, you know, it's most of the advice is stuff you should get with any job, stuff that for whatever reason we never got taught in at college, at university, which is, you know, think about the people you're working with, think about the people you're working for, think about what they want, show up, do the work, don't be a prima donna, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I worked with some incredibly talented visual effects artists or artists in general, right, who... Have no desire to work with them again because it was just like this is too hard. You're too much of a pain in the ass. So don't be a pain in the ass. That's my number one piece of advice for anybody starting out. Don't be a pain in the ass. Be good, but don't be a pain in the ass. Um and uh yeah, if if either for somebody starting out or somebody that's wanting to move on, I just you know, it's too easy to say it, but figure out where some of this artificial intelligence stuff is going. Uh, I mean, it's incredibly fun is the thing. There's so much cool stuff happening and it's changing. Every day I'll see something new. I'm like, that kind of blows my mind. So, uh, yeah, I'd be, you know, in my spare time, if I was uh, starting off in this, I'd just be playing with all that kind of stuff and seeing what, because the bottom line is, you know, see what you can make, make stuff, right? Make cool things. We do, Anybody that's gotten into the visual effects industry or the, the film industry in general, um, they want to see cool stuff on the screen. They want to. They want to tell cool stories, and I think these days, just give yourself time to do that. Give yourself time to just explore cool stuff.
1: Brilliant. That's that's awesome advice. And I mean, we've already got like a a potential plan here, right? Like your your whole micropayment system. That's that's almost like the kind of step from Napster to Spotify, right there. It's
0: true. Yep. It's true. I'm not for for me that sounds it sounds like a little bit of uh too much uh accounting <laughs> accounting work versus making pretty pictures but somebody should do it somebody go out there and do that for me okay
1: <laughs> somebody go out there and do that yeah brilliant so well and uh lastly, do you think you'll ever do a third edition or
0: what's oh man the edition i can't, i've last? been asked that so many times now, it, the short answer is probably no but if somebody really wants to do a third edition i will happily uh, hand over the reins I mean and I'm serious here somebody should probably do a third edition um, if they really think they are up for doing it they could get in touch with me and we could figure out something where you know all the existing content I'm sure my publisher would be like sure let's uh, have somebody else do a third edition and uh, you know build on this existing content I have no no problem with that whatsoever you know you do all the work I'll keep my name uh, slightly somewhere on the cover of the book and you know Bob's your uncle I like it
1: very cool thank you so much and have a lovely rest of your day
0: all right it was great chatting thanks Dan